We're here again with a look at another sacred text message from our Lord. And Alhamdulillah, this comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's uh, verse in Surah Al Nisa when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَأَطِيعُوا الرَّسُولَ وَأُولِي الْأَمْرِ مِنْكُمْ فَإِنْ تَنَازَعْتُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ فَرُدُّوهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَالرَّسُولِ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَالرَّسُولِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمَ الْآخِرِ ذَلِكَ خَيْرٌ وَأَحْسَنُ تَأْوِيلًا So this ayah which is uh, number 59 uh, says O oh, you who believe obey Allah and obey the messenger and also those who were put uh, in command over you, Ulil Amri, the people of, of Amr, the people of command, from amongst you. And if you should disagree about anything, take it back to Allah and the Messenger, if you indeed believe in Allah and the last day. And that is the best and most appropriate uh, way of understanding ta'wila, interpretation. So in this verse, we are told to obey Allah and to obey the Messenger. Obeying Allah and obeying the Messenger means following the dictates that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us through the Messenger of Allah in either the Qur'an or in the agreed-upon uh, traditions of our Prophet that have some relationship to commands or prohibitions. Whatever the Prophet brings you, take it. And whatever he prohibits you from doing, don't do that. Avoid it. So these are the basic commands and prohibitions that are in the Quran, what are called the Awamr wa Nawahi, and we are told to obey those. But then we're told to obey Ulil Amri. And what's interesting in the verse is it says, Ati'ullaha. Obey Allah, and then it says, Rasula, obey the Prophet. But then the wow there, which is a, a conjunction in uh, English grammar or harf atf in Arabic grammar, uh, does not repeat the ati'a, in other words, the, the verb, the command, the imperative to obey when it says ulil amri. It's ma'atuf ala Allah wa Rasul. In other words, the conjunction. Uh, takes it back to the obeying of Allah and the obeying of the Messenger. So obedience to government authority is actually obedience to Allah and obedience to His Messenger, unless that government authority tells us to do something against uh, any moral injunction that we've been given. So, for instance, we're told not to drink. So if the government says you have to drink, we don't obey the government at that point. But everything else... We have to obey the government. And even to the point where, for instance, in some countries now, uh, you have to buy insurance, like car insurance, if you're going to drive a car. And so our scholar said that that's a darora because the government is imposing that upon you. Uh, so you have to buy it, even if you think that that's not permissible, because it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a necessity in that situation. And so that 
that's removed and that's tasarruf al-hakam a ruler can impose certain things on a population like taxes if they're necessary even though normally taxes are considered dhulm in the Islamic tradition so obeying the, the, the government is extremely important in our religion if you look in fact in the tradition of Christianity there's a very interesting verse in Romans 13 in which uh, Paul actually tells the, the people that they have to obey uh, governments and uh, the reason for that he makes very clear is that the government was set up by God that is not different from what we actually believe because in our tradition we do believe that government is from God that God has uh, inspired people to uh, have governments and it's a fadl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, some of the mufassirun in the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says uh, that had it not been for some people defending other people, uh, had it not been for some people defending other people, the whole earth would be corrupt. So some of them say that is the, the Muslims defending against the kuffar but others say no it's actually governments the governments are instituted amongst people to prevent corruption and to prevent harm from coming so then what happens when the government becomes harmful itself well this is a very interesting conundrum and and, and something that uh, our scholars have delved very deeply into and it's certainly one of the problems in the modern world where a lot of people see these governments as oppressive and and they want to rebel against them but rebelling against governments very often creates far more harm than whatever the initial harm was from the government itself. And this is why generally the ulama were very, very loath to uh, either encourage rebellion or to sanction rebellion. They actually saw it as something very harmful and very dangerous because they really saw the destruction. And so obeying laws is very important. Just being somebody who recognizes the actual necessity of living amongst people in accordance with the laws that have been instituted to ensure that uh, people are able to live together and not aggress on one another. And so one of the most important things, if we look at all the laws, they can be reduced down to two basic fundamental concepts in law. One of them is basically do what you say you're going to do. And that's the whole basis of contractual law. So if you tell somebody that if you give me $100, I'll build a fence for you, and they give you $100 and then you don't build the fence, well, you have basically uh, done something harmful to that person based on a contractual agreement that occurred between you and that person. And so that person then goes to the court and, and in this case, it would probably be a small claims court. They would go and, it's, and have a civil suit where you say, I, here's the contract, he signed it, and he never built the fence. And then you get your $100 back or that person builds the fence or whatever uh, the, the court system does. The other thing in law is basically don't harm anybody, which is related, obviously, to the first one. But this is more uh, tort law, is, 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 is uh, criminal law. In other words, don't aggress on another human being. 
And so laws are basically there to ensure that these two things uh, will happen, that people fulfill their contracts and agreements and people will not harm one another. That's really what law is about. Now, in modern society, because our society has become so complex, governments have other functions like roads and building bridges and, and delivering mail and things like that. But that, that's where it gets complex. But if you actually look at the fundamental purpose of law, it's for those two things. And this is why obeying the law is so important. Now, when things happen that are deeply troubling to us, and I'll give you one example now. Recently, uh, there was a, uh, a teacher, I think it was a high school teacher in France, who showed some pictures and, and said ridiculously, in my estimation, that um, these are pictures of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, which, of course, they were not. That, that is absolutely impossible because, one, a cartoon is a ridiculous uh, caricature and, and relates nothing to the original person. Um, and, two, people don't know what the Prophet Wasallam looked like because we have no pictures of him, although we have very beautiful descriptions. We know he was uh, the most handsome of human beings. We know he had a beautiful face. We know he had beautiful eyes and, 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 and beautiful wavy hair. Uh, we know that his face was uh, closer to the roundness of the moon than it was a more square or a long face. We know that he had beautiful white teeth. We know that he had very beautiful lips and that he had a beautiful beard. Uh, and so all of those descriptions we do have in our books. But somebody who paints a picture and says, this is the Prophet's lie, Sinem, we reject that because we, we don't uh, know of that. Now, if somebody's trying to disparage the Prophet by doing this, then obviously that's uh, a very tragic and ignorant thing to do. To, to disparage anybody's sacred beliefs is, is really, it's just unacceptable in decent society. No decent human being would purposely uh, desecrate uh, something that others held sacred. And in fact, the Quran actually prohibits us from doing that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Do not curse the idols of those who call on other than Allah because they will curse in turn Allah out of their ignorance. So before that, the, 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 the early Muslims used to denigrate the idols, but then the Quran actually told them not to do that because do not harm, but do not reciprocate harm. So when harm occurs, so in this case, this person obviously harmed our sensibilities by attempting to denigrate our prophets, Allah. He said, that's harm, but the prophet said, do not reciprocate harm. In other words, don't do more harm from harm. And this is where obeying laws becomes very important because Muslims are prohibited from taking the law into their own hands. We don't believe in vigilante justice. We actually believe that we have to obey the laws of the land that we're in. And in fact, Ibn Abi Zayd al-Qairawani, in, in, in his extensive book, not the famous Risala, but he has another book uh, which deals with rare, uh, it's fiqhi issues that, uh, that were not found in, um, in some of the, the earlier Maliki texts. But one of the things that he was asked was about people who go into the lands of the Europeans uh, under state permission. Um, 
were they obliged to follow the laws? And he said, absolutely. They had to follow all the laws of the land that they were in. And then he, he was asked, what if uh, there was aggression upon them? And this is an amazing thing about our religion is the guidance. I mean, this man was in the fourth century, and yet the, the jurisprudential wisdom of these early Muslims was extraordinary. He said, if it was from the common people, then he is still bound by the law. But if it was from the government themselves, like if they had breached their contract by giving him safe passage and then aggressed upon him, then he was not bound by that. But he was bound by, by the laws as long as the government upheld their part of it. But if the common people aggressed upon him, that did not give him permission to break the law. So this is a very important distinction. So unfortunately, some zealous, and we would call them zealous, Muslims feel that they're doing a good deed by taking the law into their own hands. They're actually, they're actually disparaging our Prophet And because for ignorant people, they'll think that this is the religion of Islam, that the religion of Islam is a lawless religion, that we don't believe in law. And that's an immense tragedy for people that need to live together. Now, the other thing which is tragic in these type of situations is that there be, there's a collectivization that happens where we begin to group people together into groups and so suddenly all the Muslims are a monolithic group and all the French people are a monolithic group. And this fails to recognize the good people uh, and distinguish them from other people. Now, there are certainly crude people uh, Bulgarian people in every culture. There's no culture that's exempt from this. It doesn't matter if it's uh, the, the best culture in the world. Even in the Medina of the Prophet there were, there were low people, there were bad people uh, and, and that did some horrible things. So it's very important not to blanket uh, a group of people ever. We don't want it done to us and we sh certainly should not do it to others. Now, I think that these uh, Western governments really need to think deeply about uh, people who know that they're going to get very strong reactions from groups of people. In, 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 the, uh, in, in the English tradition, they have a saying, you know, let, let sleeping dogs lie. In other words, you know, if you see a sleeping dog, don't kick him or wake him up because he'll bite you. And we have a hadith that I think is much more profound meaning, is that al-fitnatu na'imatun, that, that civil strife is asleep. You know, that communities are at peace, but there's always the potential of, 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 uh, of waking uh, that strife up, and suddenly people are fighting. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was young, they, there was a program people used to watch called The Twilight Zone, and there was, a, there was, there was one, an incident on Maple Street and it, and it was basically where these the you know these people they just started messing with these people these aliens and suddenly the whole street was just fighting each other and killing each other and and the one alien says to the other this is these are the humans like it's very easy to get them riled up all we did was start messing with their technology and suddenly they're all killing themselves i mean this is that was Rod Serling trying to wake up people about how easy it is to be manipulated. And I think we all have to ask ourselves, 
Who's manipulating us? Because without the internet and without the media, these things would not be happening. And so whose agenda are you under? There is a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ said, whoever fights under a, 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 a blind flag, من قاتل تحت راية عمية. Whoever flies, fly, fights under a blind flag, in other words, fighting under a flag that you don't know who's waving it, and he dies, he dies a jahili death. He dies a death of the ignorant ones, of, of, of the people before Islam. That Muslims should always, that you should not be part of somebody else's agenda. You should not allow yourself to be manipulated. You should not allow yourself to be controlled. The only one that should be able to push your buttons is Allah and His Messenger and nobody else. In other words, Allah and His Messenger should activate you and, and not allowing other people to activate you. And, and so we have a huge problem in our community and, and I understand the sentiment. Like there are cultures in, in this world that if, if you say something about somebody's mother, they will actually uh, harm you. And and I was once in Spain, and there was a situation, because I lived in Granada, and there was a situation in Spain where somebody had cursed somebody's mother, and he, st he stabbed the person. And there were witnesses to this. The judge actually let this person off with a pretty lenient sentence uh, because it, there was an understanding that culturally what that man did by doing that was arousing a kind of anger in this person that, that took over him. It was like a possession. And so one of the things about, I think, that Western people need to understand is that if you call a black person the N-word and then that person punches you or maybe even worse, who has really caused that? I mean, one could say, yeah, we would like this person to control their, their anger. And certainly that would be the approach that somebody like Martin Luther King would have encouraged a type of stoicism which enables you. But one has to ask oneself, in all sincerity, like, who caused that? Now, racial identity in this culture and in France, if you call somebody a, a racial slur, it's unacceptable. The society won't accept it. You'll lose your job. You'll be taken, uh, you, you know, you'll be canceled. Why is it that we allow people to say the worst things about other people's religions and we don't have the same sensibilities? We call it freedom of speech. One has to really question that because a person's religious identity is so much more fundamentally profound than their racial identity. When you truly believe in something so deeply that you're willing to die for it, that is real identity. And so when you take somebody's most sacred belief and you spit on it, those people are going to get upset. And I'm saying, I, I don't like what I've seen. It really troubles me. And I, and, I, and I really, it's a tragic event all around. It's tragic for the man that perpetrated it because his life now is ruined, but it's certainly tragic for the man who lost his life, irrespective of what he did. He might not have even believed, he just believed in freedom of speech. Because when I went to Denmark after the the uh, the cartoons, one of the things that I found is that the Danish people were actually, they didn't like the fact that they printed those cartoons, but they believed in the right of that person to do it. And this gets to something very deep 
in, in Western culture and civilization, this idea of freedom of speech. America has one of the strongest, uh, because of the First Amendment, uh, has one of the strongest uh, uh, laws advocating for freedom of speech. So in, in Europe, actually, for instance, denying the Holocaust in some countries is illegal. Not in Denmark, but it is in Germany, for instance, or France. So, and people can get arrested. So I think it's very important for us, even if these ignorant people do do these things, the society should be against it. They should see it in the same light that they see racial denigration. Because denigrating somebody's religious identity, and I'm talking about mockery and making fun of them and calling uh, their, their, the, the, the people they love best, calling them horrible names. It's, and, and we're not in any way, I'm personally not in any way saying people should not have the right to criticize. They should not have the right to say, I don't believe in Islam and here's why. That's certainly uh, within their prerogative to do that. But to denigrate, to mock uh, to, to draw pictures uh, insinuating somehow that this has anything to do with the most sacred beliefs of another people. I think this is a deeply troubling uh, trend in, in this culture to, to, to give people any support for doing this and to be proud of this. I think it's shameful. And even in, in, uh, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, in Article 29, if you look at the declaration, it's very clear that... Uh, that um, public order, that public order should be maintained. And, and people that do things that upset the public order, um, governments have a right to, uh, pr to uh, prosecute them. And so we have to, I think, uh, we have to think deeply about these things. And, but I'm really, uh, I, f I feel so sad when I see uh, Muslims breaking the law so blatantly when we're a a culture that believes deeply in lawfulness and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with the lawful. Allah is not with the unlawful. That when you break the law, you, you in, in essence break a bond with your Lord. And even the laws of the land that are by and large rational laws and they come out of human reason, some of them come out of a natural law, most of these laws concur entirely with the sharia of Islam. I mean, the vast majority of laws that we're told to obey uh, here in the West are, are laws that really do concur with, with our tradition and our religion. And, and, but whether they concur or not, if we are in these lands, by the sharia of our Prophet ﷺ that was given to him, we believe, by our Lord, we are obliged to obey the laws of these lands and to, to in any way undermine those laws is to undermine the legitimacy of being allowed to stay uh, in these countries. Because if you break those laws egregiously and purposefully, then uh, the, the place for you is, is, is uh, jail. That's, that's where you belong. And it's as simple as that. And so I just want to read very quickly um, something from... Uh, this is one of my favorite books, and it was a book I think that cured me in a lot of ways after I read it from uh, just a lot, some of the misunderstandings that I had about government and about the place of government. It's called Siraj al-Muluk. It was written by a man who was very far from governments. He really had nothing to do with governments. But his name was Abu Bakr Muhammad bin al-Walid bin Muhammad al-Turtushi al-Mariki. And he lived in the, the late... He was born in the middle of the uh, 5th century 
and died uh, in uh, in 502. So he he did not live long. He, he just lived 51 years. But uh, he w- he was uh, the teacher of one of the great Maliki scholars, Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al Arabi, and uh, he he was somebody. Uh, I actually, out of love of this book, I asked uh, my my dear friend uh, uh, Sheikh Omar Bashkhaif, who uh, runs Dar al Minhaj, if he would uh, if he would uh, publish it, and he actually published a critical edition of it um, at my recommendation. And so I actually have a beautiful edition that they did, uh, but it's really one of the finest books on um, government that uh, our our civilization ever produced. But he says in there that you should know that government is from a great wisdom from our Lord. And it's a great ni'mah, it's a great blessing on, uh, on the servants uh, of, of who live in the world. And he says, Because Allah has, he has really put into creation this, this uh, this love of of vengeance, or 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 really getting back vengeance. Uh, Rawls, the great uh, uh, political scientist of of late tw- uh, mid and late twentieth century, John Rawls, said that that vengeance was a type of wild justice. It was wild justice when you take revenge, and I think. Uh, revenge movies do very well because people, in some way, they really want revenge. It's part of our human nature. But so he says basically that this this human aspect of people, this intisat, this desire for intiqam to get back uh, at people who have wronged you, wa adam and insaf and and a lack of fairness, because you don't want it for yourself. You want it for others. And, and, and this is why everybody asks for justice for other people, but with themselves they want mercy, right? But everybody wants justice for other people. Like nobody, as far as I can tell, unless they were not well mentally, nobody on the day of Arafah in Mecca or just outside of Mecca is praying, oh God, be just with me. I don't think any Muslim asks for that prayer. And to call down justice on the world... I think is to call down the wrath of God. It, I really believe that. Because a lot of what's happening on the world is actually from God's justice. But fortunately, there's more mercy than there is ghadab, than there is uh, wrath, because r- the wrath of God is his justice. It comes from, from the attribute of his justice. Whereas mercy, that comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's love of his creation. And so, personally... That's what I want. So he says that because of this when there is no government authority, they're like fish in the ocean. And the Mauritanians say, one fish eats another fish. That's what happens when there's no government. It's just fish in an ocean. So the sharks and, and, and the killer whales, they rule. And the guppies, their their lunch. So this is it. So when you when when you when you don't have governments, you just have the big people wreaking havoc on the little people. Now some people will say, "Well, that's what we have now." Well, that's partly true, 
But because we live in a civil society, there are ways of, there's upward mobility, there's ways of redressing wrongs, there's ways of looking at these things that, that we often uh, don't think enough about. So he says, The big fish eats the little fish. Whenever there's no overwhelming government, there won't be any uh, civil society in, in any organized sense. Their affairs are not uh, well organized. Uh, and their livelihoods will never uh, be sustained. I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this is what it is. And this is why he says, some of the ancients said, If you remove government from the earth, God has no need of the people on the earth. In other words, that their, their ability to fulfill their functions that Allah intended for them is done through government, through the organization of societies. Once you remove that, you're in anarchy. And, and people say, oh, well, primitive people. Primitive people are very interesting. I lived with aboriginal peoples, and they're very fascinating people. And, but in, in primitive societies, you have in-groups and out-groups. In many, many primitive societies, it was tribes warring against other tribes. If you study American history, I would just look up the Lakota Pawnee Wars. I mean, there were many, many wars amongst uh, Native Americans. They weren't anywhere as brutal as uh, a lot of uh, the civilizations where they do wars. But it wasn't, it was like they were all living together peacefully. No, if you encroached upon another people's land, they would, they would uh, fight back. I mean, I was once on a panel and, uh, and talking about the right of property. You know, this idea that, that property is, a, is, is one of the six sacred uh, universals in the Islamic tradition, and the Islam protects property. And, and this, this person said, you, this is a Eurocentric worldview, and primitive people don't, ha don't have concepts of property. And it really made me laugh because I just said, look, I, I lived with Bedouin people, and... If you go into a Bedouin's tent and try to take something that's his, trust me, they have a very profound sense of property. If you're from the same tribe, then they might let you borrow it knowing that you'll bring it back. But if you're from another tribe, no. Even watering, if you bring your animals to graze into their lands, or Native Americans, if, if you went into their hunting grounds from another tribe without their permission, that was cause for war amongst the tribes. So this idea that they didn't have private property is a lie. They didn't have it in the same way that societies that have contracts and write things and have deeds and titles and all these things. That's true. But the Palestinians, they all their land was deeded. They all knew who owned what. They weren't primitive peoples when, when, uh, when they were colonized. The Palestinians uh, had, had, in fact, the Ottomans kept extraordinary uh, bureaucratic uh, um, files on everything. They they knew every piece of land in Palestine, who owned it, what family, how long they'd had it, who had it before them, for for centuries. This was well known. So Bedouin, that's true, but Bedouin have their lands. So a Bedouin tribe's lands are well known, and they're demarcated, and they know what's theirs. And if you aggress upon them, they'll aggress upon you, and that's that's part of it. And so. This idea of government is really, really important. And uh, 
And, and, and that's why we should feel blessed when we live in government. And this is why um, one of the things that Abu Bakr Tartushi says is that when, you, when, 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 the, when the government has corruption in it, it affects everybody. But he says, وَلَوْ جُعِلَ ظُلْمَ سُلْطَانِ حَوْلًا فِي كِفَّةِ ثُمَّ جُعِلَ فَسَادُ الرَّعِيَّةِ وَظُلْمَهُمْ وَحَرْجُهُمْ فِي سَعَةً إِذَا اخْتَلَّ أَمْرَ سُلْطَانِ فِي كِفَّةِ كَانَ حَرْجُ سَعَةً أَعْظَمَ وَأَرْجَحْ مِنْ ظُلْمَ سُلْطَانِ حَوْلًا So he says, if you take one year of the oppression of a government on its people and put it in one side of a scale, and then you put the, the corruption of the population and their oppression and their rioting in just one hour, it would outweigh the, 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 the dhulm of that government in the whole year. That's what he says. It's greater. And sa'a here really means a moment. Of, of loss. It's not really even an hour. I mean, the Arabs say, He got up immediately. So here it just, and that's why the last hour is really the last moment, because when the sa' comes, that's it. It's, it's really a moment. So, and then uh, Imam Malik and Fadail ibn Iyad and others said, Jawru sittina sana khayru min harji sana. That 60 years of oppression is better than. A year of rioting. 60 years of oppression is better than a year of rioting. I, I didn't say that. This was said by our, our sages. Imam Madik said that Sultanun Rashum min fitanatin tadum, that a oppressive leader is better than civil strife that keeps going. And if you ask the people in countries where it's all broken down and you don't have governments, they I, I guarantee you the vast majority of them say they wish the government that was overthrown was back because there was order and people could live. When you lose order, it's horrible. And I don't think people realize how fragile civilization is. It's a very fragile thing. So we, we should be blessed and feel blessed to have uh, government. And uh, our government has a lot to be desired. And, and unfortunately, terrible things have been done uh, in, in my lifetime, I've seen horrible things done. I've seen people uh, bombed uh, that did not deserve anything like that. Um, and, and just many, many injustices in my life. But, but I've also been in places where it's broken down. And I've been in places also where you could be arbitrarily taken. And I was. I was, I was arrested a few times and without any recourse to anything. And so when you're in a country where if you get arrested, you can actually get a lawyer. And, and I mean, that is a great blessing. Habeas corpus, I don't think people realize just the blessing of Anglo-Saxon law, this idea of habeas corpus, you know, show me the body, like the body of evidence. Like, why am I being arrested? Why am I uh, being incarcerated? And unfortunately, of late, there, you know, we, we had some horrible things, but one of the powerful things about our system is that there are advocates that attempt to redress the wrongs. And, and so there are wrongs. And this is the nature of the dunya, because the abode is an abode of dhulm by its very nature. This abode will always have oppression. It, you can't get out of it. And that's why Allah says, la dhulm al-yawm. There's no oppression on the day of judgment. It's over. Everybody's going to get, hopefully not what we deserve. 
I mean, I'm hoping that we get the mercy of God. Because if we get what we deserve, we're all finished. And that's why we, we, we shouldn't want justice on the day of judgment. We should really want forgiveness. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Man la yarham, la yurham. If you don't show mercy, no mercy will be shown to you. And that is not to in any way belittle justice and the importance of justice. I, I believe in justice. And, and anybody that says otherwise is a liar. But, but I really do believe that the emphasis of our religion is not on justice. It's on mercy. And that's why the Quran does not begin, Bismillah al-Adl al-Muntaqim, in the name of God, the just, the avenger of wrongs. It begins, Bismillah al-Rahman al-Rahim, in the name of Allah, the merciful, the compassionate. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته